Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. A great clinician, a family man, a special guy to all of us, a great leader, a pioneer of cornea, cataract, and refractive surgery, a friend to many, a true gentleman, the ultimate teacher for our profession. Most of us would be proud to have just one of these accolades. Well, Dr. Roger Steinert holds all of them, and then some. On June 6, Roger passed away after a two-and-a-half-year battle with glioblastoma. He was 66 years old. His legacy, however, is sure to live on forever. In this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, we pay tribute to Roger by speaking with two individuals who knew him well, Dr. Sam Garg and Jim Mazo. As they and many others can attest, Roger's impact is immeasurable. But today, we'll try to capture the essence of this truly outstanding ophthalmologist, mentor, colleague, friend, and above all, human being and give thanks to the many ways in which our field was made brighter, having been touched by Roger Steinert. First up is Dr. Sam Garg. Well, welcome to Ophthalmology Off the Grid. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz, and today uh, we have a really special episode. Uh, I think we all know uh, Roger Steinert uh, was a fantastic ophthalmologist, friend, mentor, colleague uh, to all of us, and unfortunately, we recently learned of his uh, passing. And what we wanted to do, and we actually had this uh, lined up uh, before we learned of that, but uh, nevertheless, we wanted to get some people uh, that Roger really impacted, um, and he was really special to, to all of us, but wanted to have a few people um, tell us a little bit about Roger, what Roger meant to them, how Roger impacted them you know, personally and professionally. And, and today um, I have uh, Dr. Sam Garg, and Sam and I have been friends for quite a, a while, but Sam, thank you for taking a little bit of time out of your busy schedule to talk to me uh, today. And um, you know, I'd, what I'd love to do is just get a little perspective on you know, who Roger was to you, maybe even starting with how you met and, um, and how Roger um, impacted your career um, during the past uh, number of years. Sure. Thanks, Gary. Uh so, you know, I met Roger when I came to UCI in 2006. I, he had already been here for a year or two at that point, and I was a resident. And, you know, we always hear of um, this, the big stature of Roger Steinert. Uh, but one thing I was sort of impressed with um, was, you know, you would never know that by meeting the guy. And so um, I, I actually started out my career really focused on retina and I thought I was going to do retina and had applied in retina and during um, the application process and you know doing some soul searching I realized that you know retina wasn't really um, what I, I really felt passionate about and I really enjoyed cataract surgery and I thought I would really enjoy corneal surgery um, so at that point I uh, made an appointment to sit down with with Roger um, and sort of just let him know my feelings about, you know, what I thought about my career. And, um, you know, at that point, the SF match was already closed for cornea application. So either I was going to take a year off or um, he offered to allow me to interview for the cornea position at UCI um, the following year. And I, you know, I happily accepted uh, and we did sort of a makeshift makeshift interview at that time. I met with the other faculty as well who also knew me and uh, was lucky enough to match here. And, you know, really during my fellowship years when uh, our our friendship really blossomed and, uh, you know, found that I had a lot in, in common with the guy, um, really respected uh, his approach to uh, basically everything. I mean, he was a great clinician. 
He was a great person to the staff. He was a great person uh, with respect to his relationships to industry. He was a great family man. And, you know, uh, I got a chance to really um, get close with him that year. Uh, and then at the end of my fellowship year, um, he offered me a job. And it was really a, a privilege uh, to be able to to stay on here at UCI and, and learn from him and work with him side by side. And so uh, after um, about a year in the practice, he asked me to be medical director. And then we started on uh, our building project. And uh, I worked, um, you know, countless hours with him sort of from from the very beginning, uh, not so much on the fundraising side, but from the operation side and, and the actual building side to put together uh, plans on the building and, and help sort of make sure that we, we balanced our, our clinical uh, needs with um, research needs and whatnot. And finally, that culminated into the, uh, the building that we, we are in now, uh, which is the Gavin Herbert Eye Institute. You know, and then and then um, just, you know, continue to work with him. And, uh, you know, it's really been it's really been a, a, a privilege. You know, it's very interesting. So here you are, you sort of have a, a late stage residency epiphany that retina is not going to be your thing. And Roger, it sounds like really became your champion and um, was willing to sort of champion your efforts to transition into cornea and cataract. And then not only that, but take you on as a, you know, as a partner and, and a faculty, you know, co-faculty member and Really, it sounds like he sort of took you under his wing. And there's an old saying that I, I love. The saying is A's hire A's and B's hire C's. And uh, Roger was obviously an A, an A plus. And obviously, he saw something really special in you and was willing to, um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, not ever let the ego get in the way, but really champion you to be to become your best self. And it sounds like that was a trait that that he shared uh, with lots of people, but specifically with you. Is that a fair a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I I wouldn't call myself an A, but I, I think that you know Roger really brought out the best in in many people, and you know, we're seeing that more and more now as people, you know, from all parts of the practice come up to me and say, you know, Roger meant so much to me, and he was so supportive and was so open. Um, he really, you know, he he really did bring out the best in people, and it, it was one of those people that you just felt good working hard for, and you know, I think that has really done well for me in the sense that because I work so hard for Roger, uh, it's opened a lot of doors for me. Right. And I think those doors wouldn't have been there had I not had his support and, and sort of it's not really the work ethic. I think the work ethic was there before, but really the dedication to something bigger than just, you know, practice. And, you know, what we've built here at the Gavin Herbert Institute is really more than that. It's, it's, it's more than just, treating patients, but it's about, you know, uh, doing great surgery, being teachers, being, you know, uh, liaisons to the community ophthalmologists, being somewhere for, you know, the people of the community to look, uh, look to for, you know, specialty care. Um, and so we really, um, we really built this, uh, together and it's not just me, it's all of our faculty. I mean, we really, you know, he was a special guy to, to all of us. What it sounds like is he he sort of established a really special culture of working hard, but also figuring out the why behind the hard work, which is having an impact both professionally, but also in the community and with other patients. 
Um, I've also, I never had a chance to see him in surgery, but one of my attendings um, was a fellow of his. And I remember as a resident, she had, I mean, just amazing surgical skills. And she said, the best person I ever saw operate was Roger Steiner because every movement was perfect. There was no wasted energy. It was like a symphony um, inside the eye that was going on. And that, that stuck out to me before I ever knew who Roger Steiner was. I heard of this mythical man who was uh, sort of this surgical artist. And um, I just love, I love hearing stories about people who just seem to s- sort of pursue excellence, not only just surgically or clinically, but as you mentioned, he's a great family man. And one other thing I'll mention is, um, I think we had spoken offline about you know, some special patients that he had um, impacted. Um, any stories or any, anything that comes to mind about um, patients that you saw him interact with that uh, he really made a lasting impression on? Yeah, I mean, I, I get reminded of that on a daily basis because, you know, um, a lot of my practice is his old patients that, you know, he transitioned to me during my uh, sort of beginning years. And so then they've stuck with me since. Um, and then once he became ill, they, they you know, they had no other choice, really. Um, so, you know, patients love him. And it's it's daily that patients ask, you know, how's he doing? And, you know, um and up until recently, I've been saying he's been doing just fine. You know, he, he really has done really well over the last several years. And just just recently, you know, was he taking a, a change for the worse? And um, so, you know, he his patients adore him, um, you know, back to his surgical skills. He really was, uh, you know, quite gifted in the OR. And, um, you know, if you looked at the size of his hands and the stature of the guy, you would never think he could be so nimble inside the eye and really um he always was looking for ways to make a particular technique more efficient, better, better outcomes. Um, you know, he really, he really strived to be the best surgeon he could at the same time giving his trainees a lot of autonomy. And I think the reason that a lot of us, you know, from a surgical perspective, do pretty well after training with him is because he gave us so much autonomy. Um, the other thing is, you know, he's one of the only surgeons that I have ever met who, you know, would operate on, uh, on access every single time operating with his right hand sometimes and his left hand sometimes, depending on where the, the patient's, uh, astigmatism was to really give the patients their best outcome possible. Um, so to make it, you know, uh, he, he was equally comfortable both ways, but you know, for, for most of us, we're, we're so dominant with one of our hands that it, it becomes awkward to do FACO with your non-dominant hand, but he was just really, really gifted in that, um, in that regard. Wow. That is, uh, that, you know, that, that is really impressive. I only know one other surgeon who is, uh, ambidextrous and I just think that is, um, it, and it's one thing to be ambidextrous. It's another thing to be surgically ambidextrous. Um, so that is, that is really impressive. Tell me a little bit about, um, you know, the, the transition point when he realized it was time for him to step away. I, I'm assuming that was a pretty hard decision for him. Um, and, and t- just walk me through that a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, this was in, um, December of 2015. Uh, you know, he had a, a pretty, uh, um, dramatic event where we realized the diagnosis and, um, he had to actually uh, go to emergency surgery within the next couple of days. And, 
unfortunately after surgery he came out with a little bit of a, a weakness on on the right side of his uh, of his hand and you know he was right hand dominant and, and so you know he he at that point stepped away from clinical care but still very involved at that point he was actually interim dean of the medical school and just a couple of days after surgery he was you know neurosurgery he was back in the office um back to, you know, running the business of, of the medical school. Um, and so, you know, he'd already stepped back a little bit at that point because of that position. But uh, at that point, he had to cease uh, completely his clinical care. And unfortunately, he, he never made it back to seeing patients. But he would, he would always um, still have rounds with the residents and the fellows and, you know, always be available for questions from, uh, from the faculty regarding clinical care, you know, up until the very end. Uh, was always very um, passionate about uh, patients. Yeah, patient care, absolutely. So w- one other one other question I'll I'll ask, um, and this this just has to do with with fellowship training, and sometimes these these questions get to the the heart of of people. Clearly, you said that he gave you enough autonomy as a fellow to. Um, really stretch your your skills and develop into the surgeon that you are today. Any memorable mistakes that uh, you made as a resident or as a fellow that he had to correct, and and how, if so, if one comes to mind, how did he approach correcting people? Because that's a delicate skill. I made plenty of mistakes, and huh, he was one of those guys that even during surgery, patients knew who was operating, they knew if he was operating or his fellow was operating, because to this day, there's patients that know that I did their surgery, but he was there <laughs> overseeing me, and that's right. why they had a good outcome, versus, you know, um, you know, a lot of times, patients aren't really sure who did their surgery. Uh, right. So, you know, he he had a, a way of, of sort of breaking things down to a very granular level, and he knew everything about microsurgery. So really, uh, one of the highlights of my career thus far has been uh, the ability to, to write a book with him. And we wrote a, a teaching manual um, on microsurgery and sort of the, 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 the thought behind instrumentation and design, why we place certain sutures the way we do, you know, why we approach surgery in, in a certain way. Um, and he, he brought that to the OR on a daily basis. He really had a very analytical mind. He, you know, um, at UCI, um, he had a, a dual appointment in ophthalmology and biomedical engineer. So he really was inquisitive as to the why and how things happen. And, and I think that made him a much better surgeon because he didn't just take things at face value. He wanted to know, you know, why do we place things the way we do and how can we make that better? And that then led to and trying to figure out, you know, not just to do things to do it, but is that what's the rationale for why we, you know, use uh, a, a particular FACO technique and, you know, can we optimize that? Um, there was one time where, you know, he generally did not turn over his cataracts unless it was a, uh, a triple. So as, as part of a, a corneal case. And I remember the one time. Uh, just seeing the look of disappointment on his face was uh, it was a desec triple and I broke bag and you know it was <laughs> it was you know he wasn't disappointed in me often uh, thank God but that was one of the times that you could just see the look of disappointment on his face and he's you know saying come on guy this is this is something I wouldn't have done uh, right and that sticks with me 
uh, just because, you know, to this day, uh, I have a hard time passing down my cataracts for the same reason. Uh, it's just, you know, that's what I think there's such little room for error uh, right. compared to a corneal surgery that, uh, you know, uh, it was one of those things that stuck with me. Gotcha. What do you think Roger will be remembered for? You know, when we, when we're in the twilight of our careers and, um, you know, hopefully that's a long time from now, we surely will look back on and, and we'll, we'll continue to share stories about the people who influenced us, the people that, uh, the, the shoulders of the giants that, that we have stood on to, to take ophthalmology, you know, where it's going. And he's clearly one of those giants. What do you think his lasting legacy is going to be if, if there is one or if you could put that into some words? Not, not an easy question. No, not what an do easy you question. Think? Oh, thanks for that. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think Roger is going to be remembered as many things. He's going to be remembered as the guy who went from a very successful private practice to an academic institution and helped raise the stature of that institution um, you know, raising $40 million to build a clinical building the first time it's ever been done at UC Irvine. He's going to be known as a, uh, a great leader, uh, not only, you know, at the university, but at ASCRS. He's going to be known as a, you know, a pioneer of, of cornea, uh, cataract and refractive surgery. Um, he's going to be known as a friend to many, um, really a, a true gentleman. And I think on top of everything, he's going to be known as a good guy. Like he's one of those guys that just really is well revered by everyone. Um, he's he had that personality about him that despite his greatness, he was just he was just a normal guy. And he liked to joke around and he liked to not you know, he liked to just be be normal. And it wasn't all about work and, and being on all the time. I mean, some of my favorite times with him were our personal times, just, just joking around, making fun of each other. And, you know, you know, really that's not something you can do with all of the greats. Right. That's, and that's, that's a very, very special quality. Someone who is um, humble, a luminary with a humble spirit. And um, I think there's a lot of what you said that we all can aspire to be. And if we can, if we can all aspire to be half the man Roger Steiner was, um, we would be, we would count ourselves lucky. Um, Sam, we're going to have some conversations with some of his other friends um, to sort of uh, put this episode uh, together. Um, I really appreciate you uh, being willing to come on. I know this is a little bit difficult given the proximity to his uh, untimely passing. But um, Sam, I just want to say thank you for your words. Thank you for carrying on his legacy. Because as long as is the people he's trained are around uh, taking care of patients, that's a little bit of Roger that uh, lives on, I think, um, in, in you. So thank you very Thanks much. Thanks so much, Gary. It's clear what a valuable role Roger played in the career and life of Sam. Next, I sat down with Jim Mazo to discuss how he convinced this ultimate Red Sox fan to move to California and open the Gavin Herbert Eye Institute. We'll also talk about Roger's talent for ophthalmic surgery and how to play the Steinert Challenge. Here's Jim. This is Ophthalmology Off the Grid, and today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Jim Mazo, who is currently the global president for ophthalmic devices with Carl Zeiss Meditech. 
And uh, Jim was a dear friend of Roger Steinert, and we are um, inviting a few guests to come on and talk about just what made Roger so special. You know, Roger had a dream career. He was really um, head of the Mass Eye and Ear Cornea Division. He was the founder of the Gavin Herbert Eye Institute. Uh, he was chairman of ophthalmology at, at UCI, president and program chair of the ASCRS. And um, wow, that's just a, a crazy amount of things to pack into one career. But what's interesting is I've, as I've talked to folks, those accolades uh, really don't even begin to describe what Roger meant personally to people. So today, uh, Jim, I'd just like to get a little bit of a flavor for what Roger meant to you. And maybe we can just start at the beginning. Where and how did you start interfacing with Roger? And um, you know, let's just kind of start there. Well, thank you, Gary, and thank you very much for doing this. This is um, quite an honor to be one of pe many people to be able to talk about our dear friend, Roger. Uh, I had the unique experience of really helping bring Roger from Boston to California uh, as we had this vision here uh, to start the Gavin Herbert Eye Institute. And at that time, we didn't even have the name Gavin Herbert, was to start a premier eye institute in uh, Southern California to complement what we had at Jewel Stein, Doheny and up north and UC San Diego down south. So as several of the leaders and Peter McDonald was just leaving us to go to Hopkins, we met and we said, you know, we're really going to need uh, the, the top to create an eye institute and to have people provide the resources. We're going to need one of the best, if not the best. And, and remarkably, Roger's name was always at the top of the list. So, you know me, I reached out and said, Roger, um, can we meet and get a chance to talk about this. So that's how it started. And that was in the year of uh, 2003. Okay, so you said we need the best. Roger's name obviously kept uh, rising to the top and that's when you guys first first uh, started. How, was it an easy sell to get Roger out to California? I know that um, um, there's a lot of stories of him loving his Boston Red Sox. So was that, um, talk about that a little bit. Was it, hard, was it a hard sell getting him to come to, uh, to Irvine? Well, he and April uh, love Boston, um, and beyond just the uh, Boston environment, you you hit the nail on the head. Uh, his passion for his Red Sox, um, and he he actually talked about, you know, how many times do the Red Sox come out to see the Angels and play <laughs> the Angels? I, I actually remember that, thinking he was kidding me, but he wasn't. That's but, hilarious. You know, I, I don't believe it was a hard sell because Roger realized that. You know, and one of his greatest passions was teaching. Uh, probably was his largest passion if, if you really boiled it down to what he wanted to do in ophthalmology. And he saw this as an opportunity to be the first to create a teaching institution and to really leave a legacy there of uh, the young and up and comers uh, who was going to replace him. So I think after that initial sale, and of course, I brought him out in February. So, <laughs> very strategic. Yeah, very strategic. Uh, although I'm Italian, I'm not that dumb. I understand that, you know, you need to take advantage of the opportunity. And the blue skies over the gray skies was a big plus. So it wasn't a hard sell. But of course, there's always emotion when you move in. But he realized that this was his opportunity. And it was a win-win. So, you know, a lot of words get thrown around and, and we've kind of talked, I've talked to other folks about his leadership style and starting something from nothing or, you know, really from the ground up, that, that 
takes a really special leader. What do you think made him such a special leader? Well, I think there's a couple factors. One, humility. Um, you know, Roger by far was most, one of the more humble individuals I've ever met, especially with how many accolades he already had and obviously uh, incurred post him coming to California. But I think to get the type of young physician, you know, the people like yourself to want to come here and the people that were here to stay, they saw humility as such a great um, point that Roger had was they really said, this is the type of individual I want to be with. So he didn't come in with arrogance. He didn't come in and say, well, I'm Roger Steinert. Why wouldn't you want to be here? I'm Roger Steinert. Why wouldn't you want to give me money to help start this institute? And then to complement that was the other partner in this whole uh, idea was Gavin Herbert, right. who, you know, both financially and emotionally needed to understand who was going to be the leader. And, you know, he fell in love with Roger as well. And so that leadership style of humility um, was probably the greatest strength we had and Roger's greatest strength through his tremendous life. It's interesting that as I've interacted with some of the fellows that he's trained uh, who've become dear friends of mine, you know, there's sort of this culture of quiet confidence, humility, but excellent skill. And um, maybe, you know, in some way that that's a little piece of Roger, um, you know, that he has sort of ingrained that, you know, I look at Sam Garg, um, you know, I, I just see, I see a quiet confidence, humility, but just in, insane skill set. Um, do you, do you agree with that sentiment? Oh, you know, you know, Gary, I, I will tell you, being in this business now 38 years, I've seen hundreds of thousands of surgeries. I have to say across the globe, Roger had some of the best hands that I've ever watched surgery. And you know, obviously the intricacies of the surgical procedures that you all do and corneal transplants being one of those. It was like his hands were part of the eye. And I remember telling my friends, I said, I've never seen a surgeon where their hands and the eye were almost one unit working together, you know, and and I think that obviously is another characteristic. You know, when you want to go to a program, you not one only want to be able to to learn from somebody because of their leadership skills, but you want to obviously learn their surgical prowess. And his ability to do corneal surgery was extraordinary. Uh, but again, he never touted it. He never said I was the best at this. He he always would talk to the residents I, I, and say, you know, here's what you can do. And they looked at him like he was the Michael Jordan going, you know what? I, I don't think I could shoot a basketball or do surgery like that. But he made him relaxed. Right. And again, another reason people came to uh, the Eye Institute, another people, the reason people followed Roger. Well, it's um, it's really interesting. I think you see this play out uh, not just in our field, but uh, you know, really in any field that people who who are good um, and are confident of that they really don't need to um, tell everyone about it. You know, their skill set and what they do speaks volumes. And um, you know, I it, every time I talk to someone about Roger, in it, you know, without exception, his his surgical skill comes up and his humility. Um, and his love for teaching. It's just, it's so neat to see how someone of such excellence can can really kind of keep it all together and leverage that, um, that humility and skill and, and confidence 
uh, to make something that's, that's outlasts him, that will without, you know, obviously kind of live indefinitely uh, with the Gavin Herbert Eye Institute. Uh, do you feel like that's one of his most uh, proud accomplishments would be, you know, creating the Gavin Herbert Eye Institute? You, you know, most definitely. We, Roger and I had many, many discussions at the Eye Institute, at our homes, um, and, and, and he would always talk about this as his legacy. And, you know, to create something and be the first is always somebody's dream. And, you know, we literally, the three of us, Roger, Gavin, and myself, literally did this fundraising effort. And every dollar was raised from independent sources. Not one came from the state. Not one came from the university. So uh, we worked it hard. Um, but the other thing, too, to build on that legacy what is something you you kind of stirred my thought process is a lot of strange strong people are always great when things are going well um but when things aren't going well to me that's a strength and you know we've always we've all had bumps in the road but after roger was diagnosed and kelly and i were there that evening i never saw him or heard him ever complain never really, really? Never. That's incredible. That, to me, is unbelievable. Never did he say, why me? Never did he say, well, I'm going to stop now. I'm going to go enjoy. He, he went right back. In fact, I, I saw him that evening, you know, after the surgery, and obviously um, he was somewhat lucid, but we talked, and the next couple of days, you know, he kept saying, okay, when am I going to, you know, I'll get back and I'm going to get to the office. And it wasn't just words. He actually did. And to almost his last days, April was driving him to the office and because he loved it. So you talk about that this was his legacy is because it was his passion. And I think we all look for our passion and he found this to be his passion. You know, this this may go in a little bit of a sideways direction, but you know, as you're saying this, I'm it's sort of stirring my thoughts as well about, you know, just seems like they don't make them like they used to, and that that's you know maybe a little cliche, but you know we kind of have these cultural conversations about the generation that is that is up and coming, the millennial generation, and sort of the desire for instant gratification and for uh, things to happen now, and and uh, sort of being coming disenchanted with. Um, with work fairly easily. And, and I don't, listen, I know lots of millennials where that stereotype does not apply. So I don't necessarily buy into that um, 100%. But it just seems like what Roger was about was about doing it the right way, not necessarily instant gratification, but really, you know, spending his time building a foundation that could last and last and last. Um, and there's so many life lessons we can apply to approaching a project, your your family, your career, just in that same way. Um, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, do, would you agree? You know, I, I would agree because I think today all of us, even not, I'm not, I'm by far not a millennial. All of us are always so much moving forward. We've got to get going. We've got to do the next thing. Um, I don't think we enjoy the moment. Roger always enjoyed the moment. That's awesome. And even during his struggles, he enjoyed the moment. And I think that's the point we miss. I mean, we're always, you know, we're, you and I are going to do this and then we're going to jump to our next meeting. Right. 
Wouldn't it be nice just to hang up and reflect on what we just talked about? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to switch gears a little bit um, and talk about the Steinert and the, uh, the Steinert challenge. I know this is something that you had a little bit of a part in. And uh, could, you, could you just kind of explain what is the Steinert, um, how to order it perhaps, and um, what the Steinert challenge um, has done and is continuing to do? Well, you know, this is one of the great mysteries of life. We've even asked April, you know, how did the Steiner come about? The Steiner is half gin, half vodka, okay. uh, martini there with uh, stuffed olives. And that was his drink. And all of a sudden it became his persona. So okay. we're still trying to figure out the day it was the origin. But I can tell you that when um, Roger would be at meetings, um, you know, academies, ASCRSs, ESCRSs, whatever the meetings are, at the end of the evening, you'd always see that my buddy smiling and he'd be sitting at the bar, usually with a drink or, uh, and or a cigar, um, just smiling and, and having the tables and chairs around. And as people would walk in, he would tell you to come sit down and have a drink. And, and more often than not, the Steiner was in his hand. Awesome. Um, so unfortunately, as we know, Roger was failing. Uh, the Lewises, Rick and Robin, Kelly, my wife, and myself decided to do the Steiner Challenge. You know, that goes back to that ice buck challenge that occurred many years, uh, several years ago. And uh, the concept is you, you make a Steiner, you toast, and then you donate to the Gavin Herbert Eye Institute in Roger's name. So we leveraged uh, a passion of his. Uh, we used that word earlier today. Uh, and one of his passions was to enjoy life. And so by enjoying life through the Steiner, we can keep his name uh, going in uh, contributions to his passion, the Gavin Herbert Eye Institute. Well, I'm just going to throw this challenge out to everyone who is listening. Um, Roger meant the world to our profession. And I would really um, love to see this take off in an even bigger way. So if you're listening to this podcast and, it, and Roger has ever um, you know, impacted you or even peripherally impacted you just through his contributions to our field, I would really uh, uh, encourage you to do, take the Steinert Challenge, you know, videotape yourself, say a kind word, and, and give, you know, give at least 100 bucks to uh, the Gavin Herbert Eye Institute. And if you can do more, do more. But um, I think that's a great way to toast uh, Roger Steinert for uh, his vision uh, and his impact and his legacy for uh, ophthalmology. So, Jim, any parting words that you might have um, about Roger before we wrap this up? You know, I just would continue to say that Roger was a teacher. Um, and that was his life, was to teach. And he did it through his residence. He did it through his skill set. He did it through his humor. Um, many of us think we teach. Um, but in order to be a real teacher, uh, you have to take the time to ensure that what you've taught is understood. And I think that's the difference between a teacher and someone who has actually impacted the people of the future, because he would sit down with you and say, let's go through what we just did. And do you understand? And how can I help you? Um, so I want to leave that besides his humility and his passion, he was the ultimate teacher for our profession. 
And there's no greater gift than to keep his legacy going because he taught us to continue to teach others so that as years go on, um, this great profession, which has been very good to me, very good to you, continues through other remarkable people like Roger and yourself. And I think I leave people with that he was the ultimate teacher um, and something we need to always uh, admire about Roger. I'd like to close this episode with a quote from Roger's eulogy, as I think it perfectly captures his impact and legacy. He was devoted to ophthalmology, to helping save sight. But more so, he was devoted to people, to helping others, to save vision and to improve their quality of life, and to teaching others in this quest. We are all so privileged to be students of Dr. Steiner. I'd like to thank those who contributed their fond memories of Roger so that we could honor this very special man. And thank you for listening. See you next time. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.